Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly fix of all things royal, brought to you from Mail HQ right here in Kensington. I'm Joe Elvin, and here's what's coming up on today's show. How the Countess of Wessex was reduced to tears this week in an extraordinary interview. And grab your hats, Ascot's back, well, almost, and Her Majesty has a horse running, but will she be there to cheer it on? And how the Queen's quip disarmed seven of the world's most powerful leaders. Well, the last week has seen an intriguing development in what here on Palace Confidential we are calling the royal name blame game. See what we did there? That is the row over Lilibet, the name chosen by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex for their new daughter. The palace seemed to be fighting back. To recap, sources close to Harry claim that he had asked his granny if he could use her private nickname for his daughter. And then palace sources rebutted this claim, telling the Mail on Sunday newspaper that it wasn't an asking, it was a telling. Kate Manzi is the journalist behind the latest story and she brought us up to speed. Sources really well placed have told me that there's a shift happening now. There was anger at the palace about what was coming out of America, particularly with relation to a private conversation between Harry and his grandmother. As one insider told me, it was a telling not an asking during that conversation. So when these articles appeared in the US media on these very well-read, well-respected websites, that was something that really irked the palace and the Queen was not happy. It's very bad form to talk about a private conversation one may have had with the Queen. Well, I've been covering the royal family for over a decade and it's particularly significant, I think, that tempers are at such a level within the palace that impeccable sources, insiders, are telling me that enough's enough. The palace and those close to the palace know that the BBC is a mark of authority in America and in the UK. So speaking to the, speaking to the BBC about such a story was kind of a masterstroke from the palace's point of view. Um, we don't know the BBC source on this, but certainly they were very convinced with the, um, the authority of the source for it to run news bulletins the whole day long. So that's a rare point in and of itself. When the palace then was asked about the BBC story, they refused to deny it. They couldn't deny it. And by not denying it, were essentially corroborating the story. And that was a really interesting shift. I think this is very much a shot across the bows for the Sussex's spin machine. I think, will they jump on every, every little thing? No. But when it, when it relates to the heart of what the Queen has said in a conversation, absolutely, they are not going to stand for facts or mistruths, as I was told, being represented in the, in the global media. I think Harry and his grandmother, the Queen, have always been very close. They had that excellent trailer when the Queen supported him when he launched the Invictus Games. 
and she's always been really supportive of him. You know, likewise, he's always been supportive of the Queen. But when personal conversations between the Queen and Harry come to light in US media outlets, there might be more of a sense of trepidation from the palace's po point of view when it comes to how frequent those conversations ought to be and what's said during those conversations. Because as we all would, would think, if we thought a private conversation was suddenly going to come into the public sphere, we might be thinking twice about how frank we were in those conversations. And I think that's a real breach of trust. I think the never complain, never explain mantra served the monarchy for a long time. But now newspapers aren't tomorrow's fish and chip paper. We've got websites and within a few moments something can be sent round the world and it can circulate and circulate. I think with Charles we'll see a different monarch because the world's changing. We can see with Prince William as well that he's not going to be a never complain, never explain person. He isn't going to let things slide. He isn't going to let those sorts of insinuations fester in the public consciousness. Well, joining me in the studio to discuss all the royal news today are the diary editors for the Mail on Sunday and the Daily Mail, respectively. What a pedigree pair we have. We have Charlotte Griffiths and Richard Eden. Welcome to you both. But before we get our teeth into this, a recent statement from the Sussexes says, the Duke spoke with his family in advance of the announcement. In fact, his grandmother was the first family member he called. During that conversation, he shared their hope of naming their daughter Lilibet in her honour. Had she not been supportive, they would not have used the name. Charlotte, coming to you first, there was no asking, but also no telling. We got sharing, that very American term. Yeah. What's your interpretation of that sort of language? Oh, sharing such a clever American term, isn't it? Um, my theory is that he must have said something along the lines of, we're going to name her in honour of you, Granny, or we're going to name her Lily in honour of you. But he didn't really say, and now is your moment to reject this. That's my theory. Um, did he make it clear that this was actually um, a decision-making conversation? I don't know. He might have just been saying, hey, Granny, we've got this great idea. Um, and that's how they got themselves into this whole telling versus sharing debacle. I mean, maybe he thought um, there was no question of her being upset by it. Maybe he just thought it was great news he was telling her. And yeah, maybe. I mean, the Markle-Harry um, combination does tend to think that everything they do is uh, <laughs> perfect and amazing, and why would anyone ever doubt them? And it's their truth, after all. Um, <laughs> Richard, coming to you, though, since the big Oprah explosive interview, we've speculated a lot about whether or not the Queen and the Palace will start to fight back about with their version of the truth, their truths about things. But are you surprised that this seems to have been the issue that's you, where, where we've got more comment from the palace. Well, I think it was always going to happen. It was just a question of, of when um, and what was the, the spark for it. But frankly, I'm pleased that the Queen is fighting back. Um, you know, I think the palace has always had this policy of never complain, never explain. But that's fine when you're dealing with um, newspaper stories and speculation. That makes sense. But when you've got your own grandson and his wife, you know, peddling these stories, talking about conversations which you've just had it, it becomes untenable I think the you know the, the palace is right so that they have to then respond and it, it is you know it's, it's such a radical change it sort of takes your breath away in some ways but I really do think 
the Queen is right with this one. Mm. And how do you think, Charlotte, that Harry is interpreting that move? Do you think he's a bit rattled by it? Do you think you'll see it as a bit of a warning shot? Um, I, how could you not? I mean, when the Queen lays down the law, you've got to be a bit rattled. And he does know how all of this works. Meghan maybe didn't. He should have explained if not. But he actually has been here for many years. And unless he's suddenly forgotten, this is how the game works. And he knows that better than anyone. And what I'm curious about as well is I've worked a lot with a lot of the, the, the Ken Sunshine brand of yeah. celebrity PRs, those big machines. And I'm wondering if they understand the magnitude yeah. of it. They're so used to a bull in a china shop sort of approach yeah. to anything to do with their clients but this is different isn't it you've got to you've got to think they've never quite learned the nuance of it have they and it's like you know it's been a couple of years now and they still don't seem to get it but they just don't they are just so american so sunshine sets about everything um but it's it's a different ball game they're mm. gonna have to learn i think it really is a culture clash isn't it yeah. i mean you know they're the, the the people who work at the palace they're not public relations really they're kind of spokesmen you know you'd be the press secretary you're issuing statements and that type of thing well now you've got these prs who are public relations they're putting out they're you know they're putting their spin on things yeah creating a they're, script and i think this is what's causing problems isn't it whereas yeah. you know with palace officials when you speak to them sometimes it's the tone of their voice that's that is all you get and you can tell by having a good relationship with them and the tone of their voice i mean it's incredibly nuanced and Sunshine Sacks are about statements, yeah. which is a very different thing, isn't it? The thing I'm curious about as well is that if you can imagine that call between Harry and the Queen, and considering everything that's gone on and how vocal the Sussexes have been, one imagines that maybe the Queen was just being very cautious and a bit, bit nervous about having that private conversation. I'm sure um, any member of the royal family is very nervous about private conversations now with the Sussexes. I mean, could that have been why there's been this confusion? Well, I, I, I bet you one side or maybe both have probably taped the call. Mm, and and yeah. it's interesting that very careful use of words that um, Harry and Meghan came back with um, that, we, that we've just heard, because that was, seemed to me a sort of acknowledgement that perhaps a different spin had been put on that conversation first and they had to row back from that. Isn't mm. it extraordinary to think that um, somewhere in Montecito, people were thinking that maybe this baby naming would bring the family together and heal this rift, and it seems to have just oh. made it even worse. Yeah. Every, every new thing they do is like another lob from across the Atlantic, but the, I bet they thought this was an olive branch and that they'd be, you know, winning some... Um, Favours. Well, there's been a, a, another piece of news today. Talk about this rift the size of the Atlantic, and nobody is crossing the Atlantic. You know, Meghan reportedly not going to be attending the unveiling of the 60th birthday statue, memorial statue of Diana. Does that surprise either of you? Um, I mean, it's, it's not really a surprise because she, she wasn't expected to attend. Mm. Um, I think the day was always very much about um, Diana and her sons. Um, they're the ones making the speeches. Um, but, I, I mean, can you imagine, really, Meghan coming over after all that's passed? But don't you think that the longer that gap goes between her visiting, mm. the, the worse it's going to be? Can you imagine her ever setting when, foot in Britain again? When she finally does, it'll be such a big deal. It's almost sort of not worth thinking about. And in another era, you can imagine that Meghan would have absolutely loved to come over for the unveiling of the Diana statue. Her daughter's middle name is Diana. And it's actually quite good for Brand Markle that, you know, she keeps this association with the royal family once in a while. 
So it's, you know, it, it's actually an opportunity missed. But how could she possibly face up to it? But do, do either of you have any information on if, if it's true that she's not coming, why why is she not coming? What What's the reason? I think it's a, it's 50% William, this whole thing. You know, it, uh, Diana's his mother too. He makes a point about that regularly behind closed doors. And this was just not the right one to bring Meghan in because but there's sure. such tension between William and Meghan particularly. But isn't it just sad for Harry that he won't have his wife at this significant I mean, event I think, in his life? I think the official line from what I've heard is just that um, obviously they've got a very young baby and it's just not practical to be flying over as a family. But there, there is talk today that um, maybe Harry will bring Archie with him, um, yeah. which would be, um, we the were discussing this, it would be a great... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Archie the human shield. No, not really, not really. <laughs> but, but it's yeah. true that a baby does diffuse tension. I mean, Archie's quite big now. He's, he's, he's not oh, a baby. He's, but, he's still a cutie, though. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, how could you scowl at Harry from across the uh, <laughs> pond in Kensington if he's got this cute, you know, baby son with him? So it will help. It will help, I, I guess think. we'll get an answer to that question. Sadly. I think it'd be a wise move. Moving on. It's been an emotional week for the royals, not least for the Queen's daughter-in-law, Sophie, Countess of Wessex, who spoke to BBC Radio 5 Live about the deep loss that the whole royal family have been feeling since the death of the Duke of Edinburgh. Let's see a little bit of that now. I mean, we were lucky enough to go to Scotland for half term. Um, and I don't know if you remember the photograph that I took. You took of yeah. the Queen um, and the Duke. It was, uh, yeah. I was pregnant with Louise at the time. Um, and we went up there um, during half term. You okay? Hmm. And just to be there in that place was an oh my God moment. Um, so I think they'll come and go. But you have to <laughs> let them come and let them go. But just talking to you now. It's a, it's a bit of an oh-my-goodness moment, which you don't necessarily expect, and you don't expect them to come. I had the same when I lost my mother. You know, I'd be fine, absolutely fine, 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 and then something happened, or you'd hear a piece of music, or you'd do something, and suddenly you would, you know, you'd get taken off at the knees. The Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, joins us now. Rebecca, what did you make of that interview? Tell us a little bit more about the context. Uh, well, I thought it was a fantastic interview. I think she came across as very warm, as very open, as very uh, bright, as very clued up. Um, and obviously the thing that's grabbed the headlines is her very tearful and very emotional comments about the giant-sized hole that the loss of the Duke of Edinburgh has left for the family. But there was so much more to this interview as well. She spoke at length about the work that she's doing in the field of sexual violence being used as a weapon of war, which is something I'm very interested in as well. Um, and she even spoke about her children, who normally she quite kind of ring fences, but Lady Louise, who's 17, and she spoke about how much how enjoyable it is to be able to discuss her work with her and and even um james who's 13 is much shyer but she spoke about how proud she was of him of being aware of the issues around respect for girls and women um i think she came across fantastically personally would this have been planned that she could speak for the family well it's probably worth reminding viewers that actually sophie used to be in pr um, she used to run her own PR company. I actually had a Cecil 
career in PR even before that. So she's considered a pretty safe pair of hands. So I, I'm not sure they would have agreed the actual questions. I suspect they would have agreed the kind of the broad theme of the the interview. But they, you know, I think they feel that they can kind of let Sophie go, you know, and and that, that they can be fairly confident that she will handle herself in the right way. She rarely puts a foot wrong, if ever. Um, the issues that she um, she's tackling are, are, are pretty punchy, I have to say. And uh, they feel that it's kind of long overdue that she steps out from under the shadows and starts to um, shine in her own right. Well, let's get the views of the panel on this. Richard, what did you make of that? We don't often see such emotion from royal family members, do we? This was, it was so raw, this interview. You, you sort of wondered while watching it, you know, was um, Sophie Wise to have given it? She's obviously very upset and it's just so unusual to see interviews with members of the royal family. You know, we've had, it, it, well, such raw interviews. You know, we've had Prince Edward last week and then we've seen Sophie this week. It's been very interesting to see how those two have, have come to the fore. Well, it's funny, Charlotte, I, I'm curious. She seems such a good speaker and such mm. so able to connect emotionally mm. with people. Why have we waited, why have they waited so long to bring her out into the fall? Well, it's so ironic because I actually don't think tears were really allowed while Philip was al uh, alive. Oh, and I think that's got something to do with it, honestly. And But also, she's a PR woman. Her background's PR, so she knows how to play it. And I think she probably realises that it's important for the royal family to be emotional, real people at a but time you, but, like this with Meghan would, and Harry. That suggests that you think that it was artifice. Well, at first, I have to say, I did think, is this a bit contrived? But then my t I started going a little bit, so then I sort of bought into her tears in the end. But it's, um, it may be that in a, in a previous life, they would have tried to hold back those tears a bit more convincingly and that now they're not doing so anymore. Um, and it's I ironic mean, I... that Philip wouldn't have really approved, but it's about Philip that she's crying. But I, f I fully believed it because it, her, her voice caught in, in that way. You, you know yeah. what it's like when you're trying yeah. not to cry. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Do you think we will see Sophie as becoming more of a royal family spokesperson? Well, they do seem to be becoming sort of de facto spokesmen for the Queen, really, don't they? When it's, um, it's Edward and, and family. And perhaps we'll, we'll see more of that, yeah, with the Queen taking a, a bit more of a, a back seat. And it seems that it will be um, Edward and Sophie who will be sort of stepping in. And also she speaks a bit better than Kate, I'm afraid to say. Um, Kate's such an introvert and sometimes she is quite stilted. And I can relate because television is scary, but um, Sophie just doesn't have that. On that bombshell. <laughs> well, even with all of this going on, the Queen has an incredible skill for lightening the mood. Yep, this week we saw her attend the G7 summit, arguably the most serious and influential all meetings, and she managed to break the ice during a photo call with those world leaders. Let's have a look at that. How's that? Are you supposed to be looking as if you're enjoying it? Yes, definitely. We have been enjoying ourselves in spite of appearances. And Rebecca English is back with us now. Rebecca, am I right in thinking that there is more of this that goes on? We just don't usually see it. Absolutely. The Queen, although she can be quite shy sometimes, she's quite kind of witty in a dry way. And you will often hear that kind of 
banter, dare I say, dare I use the word, uh, behind the scenes. I mean, for example, there was a fantastic video that we saw this week of her meeting Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, um, at Windsor Castle, which is actually the first kind of in-face audience she's had, gosh, I think since last last March. Um, and he made a point of saying to her how excited the uh, G7 leaders had been to meet her and that she was quite the hit and everyone was talking about it at dinner the next day. And you saw the Queen kind of look at her hands and say, oh, good Lord, really? You know, and, and that's what you actually do see in private a lot. And she met her 13th US president. Do you think she still enjoys these big events? Well, I don't know about the word enjoy, because I suspect at 95, she'd lo lo love to do nothing more than to be putting up her feet or going out walking in the countryside or riding. But of course, it takes us back to that old cliche, but it's a really important one nonetheless, that duty runs through the Queen like a stick of rock. And, you know, she vowed to devote her life to this country, whether it be long or short. And, and that's what she's doing. And I think if she is going to do these events, and they are fewer and far between in view of her age that she's going to do them and do them well and and there is no one better than the queen at employing that legendary royal power of soft diplomacy and onto a slightly smaller event i heard something about a sword and a cake this week too this was absolutely brilliant. So after the leaders' reception at the G7 summit, um, the Queen was joined by the Duchess of Cornwall and the Duchess of Cambridge for a rare joint engagement at the Eden Project. And they were marking the achievements of the Big Lunch, which is a kind of community-based initiative that's actually going to form uh, a large part of the Platinum Jubilee, Jubilee celebrations next week. Um, and she had to cut a cake to mark the occasion. And she insisted on using this large ceremonial sword, even though someone was offering a knife and was cracking jokes about it. Um, uh, you know, had everyone in fits of giggles. And I think it kind of refers us back to that earlier question, doesn't it? Does she, do, does she still enjoy it? Well, if she's going to do it, she's going to have fun while she does it. And, uh, you know, does she still relish doing these things? I think in some funny sort of way she does. And let's talk about Ascot for a second. What does it look like this year? Very different, sadly, but actually at least it's going ahead. So instead of the kind of 65 to 70,000 people we see thronging through the gates every year, there are just 12,000. But obviously last year it didn't happen at all. They're all taking part in the government test and trace scheme, uh, which means um, that they don't actually have to wear masks and socially distance. Um, but of course, we're not seeing the carriage procession we would normally see involving the royal family each day. Um, the Queen hasn't attended yet. Um, we're hopeful that she might do by the end of the week, but that's kind of slightly watch, watch this space. But we are seeing other members of the royal family come. So we've seen Charles, we've seen Camilla, we've seen a very stylish Sophie. So, you know, the royals are making a real effort to support the event, even if it isn't quite as, as they would like. This time last year, we took a look back at the Queen's love of horses and she must be desperate to see her horses racing again. She's actually got a lot of runners, actually, at Royal Ascot this year. Of course, it is one of the highlights of her calendar. Um, and I'm sure she's not particularly happy about having to sit up the road at Windsor Castle and watch it on her television, which is what she is doing this week. So we have heard from her racing manager, Sir John Warren, and he has said they're going to see how the land lies. She is very keen to come, but I think they just wanted to see how this new... Uh, Royal Ascot was going to work and that we might see an appearance by her later on in the week. 
So, Richard, Queen, the ultimate icebreaker there, what did you make of that? <laughs> I do wonder if she sort of feels a need now to um, step into the breach left by Prince Philip. That, you know, although he hasn't been on official events for years, I think sort of ingrained in her was letting him make those kind of jokes. All that Prince Philip humour for decades will have rubbed off on her and now she's sort of doing it alone and cracking those jokes and with the cake thing she actually told somebody off somebody tried to get her in a real knife and she said oh no i can bloody well do it with this um with this sword and she really gave her ticking off it was very prince philip-esque and it was actually really nice to see i just say yeah. what, what's so incredible is her stamina isn't it she was at this you know g7 event a party really you know in in cornwall and then the next day she's back at windsor presiding over the trooping the colour. You don't, you don't see her yawning or even looking tired. She, she was tapping her feet um, with the band and seemed really animated. It's, and, it's amazing. And then of course there's Ascot this week. What was fascinating was seeing Prince Charles and Camilla there on the first day. They're not known to be great racing fans but mm. it seems particularly Camilla is being groomed to take over the Royal Stud. That's, um, we had an interview with... That's quite an interesting turn the of phrase. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's the Royal Stud. But it's, yeah. but we had the Queen's Racing Manager, John Warren, talking this week about um, how Camilla's really interested in horses and that type of thing. And interestingly, we also saw Camilla's ex-husband, Andrew Parker Bowles, at Royal Ascot with his um, former flame, Princess Anne. Goodness me, Which, uh, the tangled web they weave. I will say about <laughs> Camilla, I think she wears, she's got the strongest hat game in the royal family. Okay. But um, I think that the younger members of the royal family don't seem that bothered about Ascot. Do you think it's something that, you know, when the Queen ultimately passes on, that this tradition might lose a bit of its grandeur and glamour? Yeah, I do a bit. Strangely, the young royals have never really been into racing mm. in the same way the Queen has been. Um, William and Harry love polo. And they actually, they're all really good friends with, say, the Warren children. They're all good friends with the Queen's racing managers, children of old. So they run in those racing circles, but they don't actually really take much of an interest in the racing bit, um, more in the socialising bit. Um, so, yeah, I think once the Queen um, passes on, <laughs> they might not leave it. She might not leave a great racing legacy, I don't think. <sighs> well, then when will we get dressed up if we haven't got Ascot to have an excuse? Goodness me. <laughs> anyway, well, that's almost all we have time for this week. But before we go, I wanted to tell you about a special edition of You magazine this week commemorating what would have been the 60th birthday of the late Diana, Princess of Wales. We've got some fascinating features and, of course, a look at her famous fashion style. That's only a new magazine in the mail on Sunday this weekend. I might be biased, but I recommend you pick up a copy. Well, another week, another royal carriage load of news, but we're always ready for it here at Palace Confidential. A big thank you as ever to my guests, Rebecca English, Richard Eden, Charlotte Griffiths and Kate Manzi for joining us. And of course, thank you to you for watching. See you next time.